All right, girl, if you can take a seat. We're continuing on in our series called The Gospel. And I want to tell you right now, today, that you have a secret. It's okay. You have a secret goal. And you might not even know that you have this goal. You have this secret goal where you are trying to be autonomous from God. You secretly want to be out from underneath His rule and His reign. You want out from under His lordship. And if you don't believe me, every single time you sin... Every single time you do what you ought not to be do, it's like you're looking in the face of God and blatantly being rebellious because you want so badly to be out from underneath his rule. And it could be the greatest internal problem that all of humanity has. So why do we do it? Because we think we will be free. We'll be free from him. We'll be free from his rule and his reign. And the argument that I'm making today is that if you run from God, run away from his rule and his reign, that you will become a slave to a lesser king that imprisons you and needs you to survive, needs you to become powerful. It needs you. So you will either run from him and become a slave, or if you make yourself a slave to him, He will set you free. If you bow to Jesus as your king, you will find freedom. But if you go chasing after freedom, you will find yourself under the rule of a lesser king. And, well, trying to be independent from God is like saying to Air, Air, I'm tired of you. You've been confining me. I can't jump down into the bottom of the ocean. There are things I want to do that I can't do, Air. So I want you to leave me, be gone, never come back again. And when you do that, you find yourself a slave, fighting to be alive, gasping for breath, only to find yourself to be a slave of death. We're in this series called The Gospel, and the gospel is not advice about how you should live, but it's news about a king who has come. Today, we're going to see that above all things, the Bible wants you to see Jesus as a king that you pledge your complete allegiance to. And if you will pledge your allegiance to him, he will, one, rescue you, two, command you, and then three, he'll stay with you. So rescue, command, and stay. He will rescue you in that you have given yourself over to other kings. Because as soon as you leave him, you run from him, you find yourself, it's just the way we are, we're wanting something to rule us, something that maybe we can control. So we can actually rule, but really we're not ruling. And what ends up happening is it makes us a slave to it. So he rescues us for that, but he also commands us. But he commands us in such a way that sets us free. And then third, he stays with us. He stays with us to give us the strength and the power to live the way he commands us to live. So our verses today are coming from Philippians 2 and Romans 10. Here they are. Have this mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Then, Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus as king is the primary way the Bible wants you to see him. The word king and the word Lord are so closely connected that they're basically interchangeable. And 7,776 times in the Bible, God is called Lord, whether it's talking about God, Yahweh of the Old Testament, or Jesus as Lord in the New Testament. 20% of the Bible verses in the Bible are referring to God as Lord or King. The word King is used 2,000, over 2,800 times, and that doesn't even include the way the Bible is referring to God as king, and it doesn't even include the way the Bible talks about the kingdom of God. Therefore, it's pretty hard to argue that the primary way the Bible wants you to see Jesus is as a king. And what I want you to also see is that the Bible sees you as both kings and queens. So when God created, he says to humanity, have dominion over all the earth, which means to rule like a king would. But that dominion over all the earth is for you, like a farmer, to cultivate life in the earth, to care for the earth, make it well, make things go well. When, when the Bible says you are made in the image of God, it means to say that at that time, kings were the only ones who had the title reserved for them as the image of God. But when God comes on the scene and he says all of humanity is made in the image of God, he's saying everyone is a king or queen that's meant to rule over all the earth and care for it well. We've been saying in this series that when God created everything, he created it good. Now this is so important for you to understand. The word good in Hebrew is tov. This word is not, doesn't mean what you think it means. Tov is about something being so good that it is filled with abundant life. So we typically think of Eden, and we think of it as a perfect place. But it is not perfect. It was good. Perfect implies something has been brought to its completion, or its end, or its goal, or its telos. When Tov, in the beginning, the goodness of, of Eden... It's about something new that has all the potential to reach perfection, to reach the goal, to reach the telos. So what that means is that us as kings and queens, what we're meant to do is to take the goodness, the abundant life, the tove of Eden, and spread it over all the earth. That's your job. How was it to be done? Well, it seems that what needed to happen is humanity, you, me, what we needed to do, Adam and Eve, needed to see that tree of death that ruined everything, pass right by it, and go to the tree of death, or the tree of life, and feast on the tree of life. 
And as we feast on it, we remain alive. And then we take the aliveness of this tree and spread it over all the earth. Well, Jesus comes and he says something astounding. In John 15, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches, which is to say that I am the tree of life. I am the root system. I am life. I'm the life system. And if you will draw from me, if you will abide in me, then you will be tove. You will be fully alive. He even has the audacity to say that you can do no good apart from me. Now, if we're tracing this word good all the way back to the Old Testament as meaning tove, then what he's saying is you cannot have abundant life without me. And you can't spread this abundant life without me. You can't spread this abundant life to your children without me, to your friends, to your workplaces. So what we find is that instead of humanity eating from this tree of life, they, we, ate from the tree of death. We do the same thing today, where we pass right by Jesus as king, and we make something else our king. We make something else our Lord. We draw life from something else. And as we do that, we become kings and queens of death. When you aren't connected to Jesus, who is life, the life system, the root system, you're dead. And you can't spread this aliveness anywhere you go without being connected to him. And I want you to see something that Adam and Eve did. They looked at this tree of death, and they saw the fruit, and they said that the fruit is good for eating. They said it was tov. They, they thought it would bring abundant life. God had just told them that this tree will bring death, but then they looked at it and they saw this is good. This will bring life. And it didn't. And what does that mean for you? Well, it means that often we will look around and see things that we think are good for us, but they only bring corruption and they only bring about more death. And the reason that we're doing it, the reason that we see things and we think that they're good but they aren't is because we have brought ourselves out from underneath his rule and his reign and we're making decisions on what we think is good. But the problem is we keep doing what Adam and Eve did. We keep seeing things that we think are good but they're not. And they bring about corruption, they bring about death. So I want you to imagine, like this, we do this in our prayers, like we're praying something and we're thinking we're praying for something good but we're not. So I want you to imagine a man on his knees praying to God. And he's praying that God would get rid of all of the evil in all the earth. Why is he praying this prayer? Same reason we do. Something's gone wrong in his life. Maybe his child is sick. Maybe he's depressed and he can't take it anymore. Maybe there's problems at work. Maybe there's problems with his home life. Maybe things just aren't going well at all and he's tired of it. He's exhausted by it all. He's been brought to his end and so he says, God, just do away with all this evil. I'm done with it. And then imagine that God answers his prayer. And he looks out the window and he starts seeing everything that's wrong with the world become turning into dust. And he gets excited and he gets in his car and he's driving around and he starts seeing everything that's wrong with the world turning to dust. He sees, he sees uh, corporations that are evil brought to dust. Um, he sees all the trash that's around brought to dust. He sees strip club clubs brought down to dust. He sees cats, and they're brought down to dust. And he sees, sorry for cat lovers, I had to throw that in there. Um, he, 
he sees everything that's wrong, all murderers in prison, brought down to dust. And then he looks at his hands. And his hands begin to be turned to dust. He cries out. Saying, Ah, I've doomed us all. I prayed the wrong prayer. I should have prayed for God to send a rescuer. Instead, I said, God, do away with all that's wrong with the world. And that includes myself. He should have known. He should have prayed for a rescuer. This is our second point. The king who rescues. So first, you have to see that the king rescues you from yourself and from these kings that you put yourself under the rule and reign of, these lesser kings. So the Israelites, go to the Israelites. These people found themselves under the rule of an evil king named Pharaoh. How did it happen? Well, if you get a big picture look at all of the Bible, what you find is that humanity was in Eden. And God promised, they lost Eden, God promised a way back. But when you go to Eden and you see what Adam and Eve did, there's a serpent there. Now, by the way, the Pharaoh would have had a snake on his crown. And when the Israelites read this story of the snake in the garden, they would have immediately thought of the Pharaoh. And what we find in this garden is that this serpent whispered a lie right into the ear, into the heart of Adam and Eve. But they, the serpent said something that they wanted to hear. Don't trust him. He doesn't have your best for you. He's holding out on you. Get out from underneath his rule and his reign. And this pattern continues to happen where humanity tries to keep getting away from God. And so God finally says, okay, fine. I'm going to bring you back. Just go ahead and go. See where it leads you. So they find themselves to be underneath the rule of this evil king, Pharaoh. But then finally humanity cries out, God save us. And then God says this, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will bring you into the land that I have sworn to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So then God does this. He takes these plagues and he barrels them down upon this king Pharaoh. And the king finally says, okay, fine, Israelites, get out of here, please. I want this to go away. And so they go to leave. And then Pharaoh changes his mind and starts chasing them down. And Pharaoh's getting closer and closer. And then finally God does something. He opens up the sea of death. Water represents death in the Bible in a lot of places. Opens up the sea of death. And then the Israelites pass through. And as Pharaoh's coming, God brings down the sea of death upon Pharaoh and all of his minions. Now, as soon as this happens and they're rescued, the Israelites say, they start complaining to Moses and they say, we wish we were back under the rule of Pharaoh. At least we weren't wandering in the wilderness. Do you see this? The same thing over and over and over again. Wanting to be out from underneath the rule of God under lesser kings that you feel like you can control more. <coughs> so what does that have to do with you? When you try to live autonomously from God, you will naturally put yourself under the rule of some other king. 
And you can make anything your king. Kings typically don't wear visible crowns, but invisible crowns. You can make your career your king. You can make your spouse your king or queen. You can make your children your king. You can make your image your king. You can make your possessions your king. And all these things, when you do that, you start going to them for life. You start going to them to tell you that you're worth something, to tell you that you're valued. You're trying to draw life from them. Here's the problem with that. These these things, they're not creators. They're creation. They have no life to give you. All that creation can do is draw life. And so you go to these things that you've made kings, even these good things, but the problem is you made them ultimate. And you go to them and you say, make me alive. But you know what they're doing to you? They're needing to draw life from somewhere. So they're beginning to draw from you and pull life from you. And you know this. Your kids, they will take life from you. Your spouse needs more. Kings kings and queens are always asking for more. Give me more. I need more. Your bank account. Why does it keep getting so much smaller and keep saying, feed me, feed me, feed me? Whatever it is that you make your king, you abide in that thing. And you go to that thing for life. But it can't give it to you. Your career will continue to drain life out of you. What you need is some, a life system that you don't have to depend on to draw from life that doesn't give you life. So you go to the root system, who is Christ, who is life. And you begin to draw from him. And he wakes you up. And he makes you alive. The only way to parent and not have the life drained out of you is to have a life system that you are already tapped into that's giving you life. The only way to remain a spouse who's continually loving is to have a life system that is made of the stuff of love, constantly pouring love into you over and over again. So you have love to give to your spouse. The only way to look at your bank account and not get depressed is to have a life system that's greater than your bank account. Christ is the only king who will die to give you life. All other kings are dependent on you. Only Christ is the one who can go into death and live through it so that you might live through it too and be awakened and alive even now. And on the cross, you know what he does? He, so, so Eden is gone. The world of Tov is gone. And so when he dies on the cross in your place for your sins, what happens is he pays the penalty and he pays the debt and the gates of Eden open up and now you have access there. But there's still another problem. You have these kings that you have made yourself a slave to and they're clinging to you because they need you to be alive. They need you with them to, for them to live. But he takes their grip off of you so you might enter into life. And then, if those things that are good that you've made ultimate, like your kids or your spouse or your careers or whatever it is, well, now you're in Eden. So now you can go back to those things and offer life to them in Him. He and He alone can rescue you. And then, after He's rescued you, He commands you. 
you don't want to hear this one, but I'm going to tell it to you anyways because you need to hear it. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall walk, talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be on the frontlets between your eyes and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, God is giving you commands. Remind yourself in every single way. Talk about these commands with your friends. Talk about this at the dinner table. Talk about this before you go to sleep, before, as you wake up. Talk about the commands of God so you will remember them. So you'll have life. And then Jesus comes on the scene. and He says something. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't listen to my commands? Now, what Jesus has just done here is he's just made himself out to be the God of the Old Testament. He's made a, a monumental claim. It's very popular to see Jesus as a good teacher. He is not one. I mean, he is one, but primarily, he's a commander. And you don't like the idea of that because you lose control. A teacher, you can pick and choose what they say. But with a commander, well, they're in charge. They're the ruler. We love the idea of Jesus being a rescuer and a forgiver of sins. That's good. But him being a commander, well, now you don't feel free. But his commands are the commands of life. So every single command he gives you, even the ones that you don't want to hear, those are commands that are meant to make you more alive, not less alive. And they make you more free. The commands he gives are like the air that you breathe. You need them to make you alive. We like the idea of the good life, but we like the idea of the good life without the one who rules and reigns to give us that good life. We want the kingdom without the king. We want the great life without the giver of life. But it doesn't work. We want the kingdom without the king. And I understand this. I'm naturally rebellious, probably more than most people. And as soon as somebody commands me to do something, I want to do the exact opposite thing that they told me to do. Maybe I'm a hard case for God. Maybe that's the way all of us are. I don't know. So, and the other, the other problems that we have and that I have is like, okay, then I convince my mind this is the right thing to do, but my heart is way back here. Like, my mind is like ready to follow God, but my heart is running completely the other way. So the question is, how do we get to the point of hearing the commands of God and actually wanting to hear them and wanting to obey them? Combination of two things will get you there. Fear of the Lord and knowing that he's good, both at the same time. Knowing that he's mighty, he's terrifying, and that anything that threatens life, he hates and wants to destroy, because it is a threat to you. 
Yet at the same time, you are threatening life around you in the way that you're living because you're not following his commands. And every command not followed is a threat to life. So what will he do? Well, he's good. So he's the lion who is terrifying, yet he's the lamb who dies in your place, both at the same time. There's a tension. And if you're trying to meet him as just the lamb, you won't know him. And if you're trying to meet him as just the lion, well, you're just going to run from him. But if you know him as both, well, now you've met the king. And it could very well be that we're not happy with life the way that it's going. And we're mad at God about it. And the whole time God's saying, I've been giving you good commands. And if you will have just listened to them, your life would be working out much different. But you won't listen. The commands are good. There's breakdown in relationships when we aren't listening to his commands. If you will put yourself underneath his rule and his reign, you will forgive because he commands it. You will love because he commands it. You will be gracious because he commands it. And when someone does wrong to you, you will know. You'll have the wisdom to know what to do. You'll be able to know if you should forgive them and seek reconciliation or if you should forgive them and then simply walk away. That's a hard decision to know. You need wisdom, but you need the wisdom of the king. You'll learn to risk for the sake of love because he commands it. You will become a stronger leader who isn't swayed by the ways of the world and the ways of the wind, but by the way of the king. You will care more about people, but you will care less about what they think of you. You'll know better how to raise your kids, how to treat your spouse, how to treat your neighbors, how to treat your coworkers. You'll know better how to treat your money. You'll find balance in life. You'll know how to treat food. You'll know how to treat sex. You'll know how to treat body image. You'll know how to treat everything else because you are now under the command of the king. But he not only commands you, he gives you the power to live the way that he commands by his presence and the want. See, a lot of our problem is we don't want to obey the commands. There's a rebellious side of us. There's a monster inside of us that we don't want anyone to know, but it's there. And he has come to be the greater terror, you could say, to say this is how you should live, but then to be gracious and loving in his presence and with you to say, but I love you, now live this way and then give you the power to do it. So this is our fourth point, the king who stays. His name is also Emmanuel, which means God with us. He will never leave you or forsake you. And that means you have access to the king like a child has access to his mother. Call and he will come running. So my daughter, Harlow, has been doing this thing every night. She's tricking me every single night. She literally screams out, Daddy, like something horrible is happening to her. So naturally, what do I do? I get up and I go running down the hall to her. And I say, what's wrong? She says, can you put the covers on me? Now, 
we've just been woken up by our youngest son over and over again. So in my mind, I am so annoyed by this. But God doesn't get annoyed by this kind of thing. He does not sleep. He doesn't need to. And he will always come running down the hall to you. He's eager to do it. He is the powerful commander, the lion, who tells you to live a certain way. He's also like a tender mother who goes running down the hall to give you the strength and the power to live the way that he's calling you to live. But you have to call out to him. You've got to cry out his name. And you've got to not worry if you're annoying him because you're not. He longs to hear your voice. Please hear this. In every other religion, you have a God who creates the world and is gone. Not personal, cares nothing for you, just creates the world and leaves. In other religions, you have a God who is so close to creation that he is part of creation. That God has no power. So either you have a God who can't save you because he cares nothing for you and knows nothing that's going on in your life, or you have a God who has not the power to save you. But in Christianity, you have the creator of life who comes into the world, comes running down the hall to come and get you and be with you and give you life. He's the king, and he's your only hope. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords and his power is unstoppable. His understanding is beyond limit and his love is immeasurable. He's powerful, fierce, yet tender. He's approachable, yet to be feared. And he is gracious to you when you sin, but he is violent against your sin. And for you, he has come, he has rescued you, he's commanding you, and he's staying with you. And he wants life for you now, and now you just have to want it for yourself. And if you want it bad enough, you'll go to him. So go to him and pledge your allegiance to him. Let's pray. God, I pray that the tension of what it means to meet you would be known. We would feel it. And we would see that that tension is what causes us to want to worship you. That you are both the lion and the lamb. You are both, both the fierce warrior against sin, yet the lamb who has come to die in our place for sin. Teach us to be people who pledge our allegiance to you every single day. And when our mind knows that we should pledge allegiance to you, but our heart is far from it, I pray, God, that you would come running down the halls. Run down the halls of our hearts and run right up to us. And show us all the reasons why you are our king and you are a worthy king and a good king. Help us, God. We need you and we love you. Amen.